What are the main factors prompting the civil unrest in Ukraine? Are there legitimate reasons for removing the government of President Yanukovych from power? How concerned should supporters of the protests be about the presence of militant right-wing fascist elements in their midst? How are Western and Russian interests covertly influencing the situation? And against what geopolitical backdrop are these events playing out following the failed military intervention in Syria? The Global Research News Hour will focus this week on the Ukraine uprising with University of Winnipeg history professor and Ukraine national Andriy Zayunyuk, as well as geopolitical analysts Eric Dreitzer of StopImperialism.org and Rick Rosoff of Stop NATO. On today's program, Euromaidan Uprising and the Grand Chessboard. Bringing you the analysis beyond the headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of February 7th, 2014. I'm series host Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major stories shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available for download on the website globalresearch.ca. We can also be heard on participating community radio stations as well as on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The forbidden question, both by the West as well as by the Russian government, in addressing the possibility of a terror attack is, who is behind the terrorists? While the U.S.-sponsored Chechen rebels were defeated in the 1990s by Russian forces, various al-Qaeda-affiliated formations, including the Caucasus Emirate militant group Emirat Kavkaz, IK, remain active in the southern Caucasus region of the Russian Federation, e.g. Chechnya, Dagestan, Ingushetia and Abkhazia. Both the Russian-based Al-Qaeda groups, as well as the broader network of jihadist formations in the Middle East, Central Asia, and the Balkans, constitute CIA intelligence assets, which could potentially be used to trigger a terrorist event at the height of the Sochi Olympics. Needless to say, Moscow is fully aware that Al-Qaeda is an instrument of Western intelligence, and Moscow is also aware that the U.S. is covertly supporting terror groups which threaten the security of the Olympic Games. That's from an article, The Sochi Olympic Games and the Threat of a Terrorist Attack, Who is Behind the Caucasus Terrorists? by Michel Chosodovsky, posted February 6th. We've warned since 2009 that the government could be launching cyber false flag attacks in order to justify a crackdown on the internet and discredit web activists. A new report from NBC News, based on documents leaked by Edward Snowden, appear to confirm our fears, documenting that Britain's GCHQ spy agency has carried out cyber false flag attacks. To quote from the report, in another document taken from the NSA by Snowden and obtained by NBC News, a JTRIG official said the unit's mission included computer network attacks, disruption, active covert internet operations, and covert technical operations. 
Among the methods listed in the document were jamming phones, computers, and email accounts, and masquerading as an enemy in a false flag operation. The same document said GCHQ was increasing its emphasis on using cyber tools to attack adversaries. Postscript. We await further revelations of false flag attacks by spy agencies. That is from the article, Spy Agency Engaged in Internet False Flag Attacks, from Washington's blog, posted February 6th. Goldman Sachs, the Wall Street investment bank, is being sued in London for selling Libya worthless derivatives trades in 2008 that the country's financial managers did not understand. Libya says it lost approximately $1.2 billion on the deals, while Goldman made $350 million. At the time, the Libyan Investment Authority, LIA, which invests profits from the country's oil and gas exports, had assets worth $60 billion under former dictator Muammar Gaddafi. Goldman Sachs convinced LIA to buy long-term call options on six companies – Alliance, a German insurance and investment company, Banco Santander, a Spanish bank, Citibank, a U.S. bank, Electricité de France, a French state utility, ENI, an Italian oil company, and Unicredit, an Italian bank. Quote, the unique circumstances allowed Goldman Sachs to take advantage of the LIA's extremely limited financial and legal experience to deliberately exploit its position of influence and to take advantage in a way that generated colossal losses for the LIA but substantial profits for Goldman Sachs, unquote, said LIA chairman Abdul Majid Brish in a statement. That is from the article, Goldman Sachs Sued for Selling Libya Billions in Worthless Options, by Richard Smallteacher, posted February 5th, originally appearing at Corp Watch. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The modern wave of ongoing demonstrations in Ukraine began November 21st with a protest against the decision of the Yanukovych government to back away from an economic cooperation agreement with the EU. In the weeks since, we've seen violence intensifying both from police and from the protesters themselves. Now, more than two months later, there seems to be no end in sight to the continuing unrest. Joining us now to talk uh, in a little bit more detail about the uh, events unfolding in Ukraine is Dr. Andriy Zayarniak. He's an associate professor of history at the University of Winnipeg. The average people of Ukrainian, uh, how, how united are they behind this opposition? Well, it's a difficult question right now because the opposition actually is in minority in the parliament. And um, basically, government's position is that they, they are democratically elected government, both the president and the parliament, right, with its, with its majority. Um, but the opposition would argue that uh, they basically undermined their legitimacy by, you know, violating the procedures um, voting for the so-called uh, dictatorship laws, right, on the 16th of January this year, when they didn't have a majority, but they basically 
declared that the majority was there and they violated the regulation of the parliament's uh, um, voting procedure, right? So, um, and it's it's very difficult to talk about an average Ukrainian because, of course, not everyone is participating in those protests, right? The majority are actually staying at home. It's only a very conscious, uh, civic-aware minority, even though it's a very sizable one right now, but it's still a minority, right? So it's hard to say. And there are also regional divisions as well, but I would say that... um, this current civic action is probably um, it's probably the one that unites Ukrainians more than any uh, any other before. Even during the Orange Revolution, for example, I think in 2004, regional divisions were stronger than now. And now the number of people who support uh, protesters in Kyiv are very strong also in those regions which are traditionally associated with um, uh, you know, the party of the regions and current president's electorate. Okay. We've had heard so far uh, talk about how, I believe it was in the middle of December, of December 17th, the uh, Ukrainian president got together with uh, President Putin and they arranged, well, we're going to cut uh, an agreement where they would cut the cost of natural gas uh, and that uh, they would be buying about $15 billion in euro bonds. Uh, do, do we have any sense about whether that uh, there is anything else going on uh, th- that Russia is uh, uh, in some way uh, influencing the situation, maybe in a, an irresponsible way? Yes, there is a sense of it, but there is no hard proof. I mean, there were some declarations of uh, Russian politicians um, supporting the government. Some of them saying actually that Ukraine is not a viable nation state, that maybe it should split into two parts and so on. But again, it doesn't come uh, as an official statement from the Russian government, right? The official statement was that uh, foreign powers should not intervene into Ukraine's current crisis. And they mean, first of all, um, European Union and uh, the United States, uh, because the opposition is actually trying to uh, get as much involvement from the West as possible. And the EU uh, promised the opposition to cooperate with the United States uh, um, on the possible solution to the crisis and even to establish a permanent EU mission in the country for the duration of the crisis. Um, so Russia believes that this is a foreign intervention and that they are against it. But there are all, all kinds of signs and rumors that Russia is more deeply involved into the crisis. Um, of course, protesters claim that there are uh, you know, Russian special forces present, perhaps only as instructors of the Ukrainian riot police and special forces. Um, but we should also remember that... Uh, it's uh, it's a time of, of the Olympic Games in Sochi, right? And Russia is not interested in drawing too much attention to its action right now. And, you know, in Russia we had um, a release of um, Khodorkovsky, you know, the famous oligarch uh, who ended in prison because of uh, being anti-Putin politically. Um, and uh, the Pussy Riot uh, women were released from prison as well. And most commentators believe that this is connected to the Olympic Games and Russia is trying to 
present itself as a softer, nicer power. Right? Yeah. The Yanukovych government was elected to power um, in fair elections, uh, in spite of, if not because of their uh, close, uh, well-established uh, preference to links with Russia. Uh, what do do the demo, do the protesters' demands uh, for the government to resign have a democratic leg to stand on? Yes, I think that. Uh, I mean, some people are raising questions about uh, actual presidential elections because in the region controlled by Yanukovych, in the Donetsk region, which is which has very high density of population, the turnout was uh, much higher than in the rest of Ukraine. Uh, something like 65%, I believe, against uh, 50 uh, as an average for for the country. And they believe that it's a sign that elections were falsified there. Um, second, immediately after Yanukovych became a president, um, the Constitutional Court, under his um, influence most probably, changed um, country's constitution. Because uh, in 2004, during the Orange Revolution, the parliament uh, voted some amendments to the original 1996 constitution of the country and basically turned the country into a parliamentary presidential republic. Right? The parliament had the right to uh, appoint a prime minister and to basically form the cabinet. Right? So the constitutional court in 2010, after Yanukovych's election, said that there were some irregularities procedural irregularities when the parliament voted for those amendments and basically annulled them. So the constitution reverted back to a a strongly presidential version of 1996, um, which was useful for Yanukovych, who could appoint his own prime minister and didn't have to consult the parliament, in which a position was well well represented. And they also changed... um, uh, election rules um, and uh, now the parliament is uh, formed on a mixed basis uh, part of it is uh, formed on the basis of party lists for for which people vote all over Ukraine right for the party and but there are also districts uh, in which you can be elected as a as an MP even belonging to a party right and usually the presidential uh, structures, I mean, the executive branch of the government can influence elections in those um, so-called majoritarian ridings, where you, you elect people and not parties. Right? Uh, Dr. Zayarniuk, h- how do you see things resolving themselves in, in coming weeks? It's a tough question. You know, as a historian, I can't predict the future, but... Uh, I hope that there will be a parliamentary solution to this, and Parliament right now is working on this. So um, at the moment, they are discussing possible changes to the Constitution and introduction of the Parliamentary Presidential Republic. Um, After that, uh, most likely there will be new parliamentary elections and there will be new cabinet um, so ideally, the cabinet should be formed um, either by um, uh, some kind of new coalition that would in- involve both the opposition and some factions of the current uh, majority. 
uh, or it could be you know, the government of experts not affiliated with a political party and so on. But uh, yeah, the main thing is that the president should have no power to dismiss the cabinet right after it's, uh, it's elected. And um, so, yeah, I hope that there will be a parliamentary solution to this. Um, but at the moment, there is a standoff and tensions are still high. And just today, I read news that uh, there was an explosion in one of the buildings controlled by the protesters. Um, they do receive all kinds of you know, humanitarian aid, and including medical supplies. And one package with the supplies actually contained explosives. Um, so, yeah, the crisis is still there, like... We are lucky that we haven't seen uh, any violence last week, but, uh, I mean, it's not... Uh, it's not letting it's, up. <laughs> no. Okay. Well, Dr. Zayarniuk, we uh, really appreciate your analysis. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Professor Andriy Zayarniuk is a uh, associate professor of history at the University of Winnipeg and a Canadian of Ukrainian extraction. The violence on the streets of Ukraine is far more than an expression of popular anger against a government. Instead, it is merely the latest example of the rise of the most insidious form of fascism in that Europe has seen since the fall of the Third Reich. Those are the lines that open an article, a recent article by Eric Dreitzer, founder of StopImperialism.org, in which he outlines some of the elements that are inhabiting the opposition forces within the uh, Ukraine uh, uprising. Uh, he joins us from New York. Uh, he is an independent geopolitical analyst uh, who's uh, been looking into this situation. So, uh, Eric Dreitzer, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, first of all, you talk about a, a political formation called Pravi Sector and, and explain them as, as being uh, uh, essentially a, a right-of-center, ultra-nationalist group. Could you, could you give us a little bit more detail about who they are and, and what they stand for? Well, what I wrote about in the article is something that I, I was hoping to give people an idea of the, the scope of the various groups, because I think that some of the delineations, especially what we've seen in certain uh, Western media outlets, I think are somewhat arbitrary. Where the line is drawn between one right-wing group and another right-wing group, I think is somewhat less important. When I was talking about the political formation of Prave Sector, I was talking primarily of essentially an umbrella organization that encapsulates a number of different groups. These would be a party like the Svoboda or Freedom Party, another group known as Tris and uh, various others, all of which fall under the grand umbrella of what we would call right-wing ultranationalism. Now, I use the term fascism, I think, in order to place this uh, element into a broad historical context, because, of course, we know uh, from you know, modern history the rise of fascism in Europe and the conflict between fascism and fascist tendencies in places like Ukraine, the conflict, of course, at the time being uh, with communism in Soviet Russia. So uh, in order to place it into a broad historical narrative, I wanted to locate these right-wing groups in uh, the continuum in which I think they belong. Okay. So um, 
in terms of uh, the the elements within that umbrella organization, I mean, what what binds them all together? Well, there's a number of different things. I think uh, from the from the historical and, and, and contemporary perspective, uh, and from our Western perspective, what binds them together is an ideology of exclusion. That is to say, it is an ideology that we would call hate. Uh, they have a very real aversion towards immigrants, towards uh, Jews, towards many minority groups. Remember that historically uh, the, the, the Jewish ethnic population of Ukraine was very large. Uh, estimates ranged between a quarter up to a third of the total population of Ukraine at one time in the height of the Soviet Union was Jewish. And so there is a very real anti-Semitism. There is a very real anti-Muslim ideology but these i think are are also just kind of the cultural uh ties that bind them from an economic perspective and from a political perspective the primary uniting factor is an is a hatred of russia of all things russian they view russia and uh russian economic influence as an insidious force in the ukraine and for that reason they find themselves ideologically aligned with so-called liberals in the country that is to say those who view the european union and the west more generally as a an uh sort of a preferable alternative to what they what they see as russian power and russian influence but beyond that of course they also have a number of other ideological ties that bind uh primarily of course this what we would call ultra nationalism which is interestingly in their minds not in conflict with with integration into europe although i think it would seem to be a self-evident contradiction hmm. so uh, strange bedfellows i suppose um so what, you, you do have, I guess you could call the more mainstream elements of the opposition with, with legitimate criticisms of the, uh, the Ukrainian government. Absolutely. But uh, h- how do you see these uh, right-wing elements, their, their influence uh, being felt within the, the context of these uh, ongoing uh, protests? Well, I would say for the record that it's unfortunate that uh, these these right-wing fascistic elements are the ones who do get all of the play, because as you mentioned, there are uh, uh, protesters involved in the Maidan protests in Kiev who are certainly not uh, uh, neo-Nazis and and fascists of various kinds, who are genuine uh, democracy-seeking activists who would like to uh, better their nation, but unfortunately they're not in control of events on the ground. Regardless of what the numbers are, whether you want to say that the ultra-right-wing element is 20%, 10%, 30%, 50%, whatever you want to say with regard to the total opposition, they're the ones who are in the driver's seat. And I think that we could point to a very clear example from recent weeks when Ukrainian President Yanukovych made the concession to opposition leaders Yatsenyuk and uh, Klitschko that uh, he was offering the post of prime minister to the opposition and various other ministerial posts in his government in order to create a de facto coalition government. That deal was initially accepted by Klitschko and the opposition. However, when they returned to the Maidan Square in Kiev and they announced that to the crowd there, 
you could immediately see that it was the ultra-right-wing forces who led the charge saying that this was unacceptable and who immediately began to instigate more violence. And it was that was the main driving force for why the opposition then reneged on the deal and said that they wouldn't accept it and that they would only accept fresh uh, elections and a uh, democratic transition of the government. And I think that's very telling because whether they represent a small minority, they represent the most vocal faction within the opposition. And it is for that reason that when you see the violence and when you see the pictures on the streets, whether it's of uh, 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 Ukrainian police officers on fire, whether it's the, the catapults and the Molotov cocktails or whatever, when you see those images, you have to recognize the influence and force that the ultra-nationalist right-wing elements are wielding on the ground, where they speak with their language of violence, where the other protesters might speak with the language of protest. Mm. Now, um, in terms of uh, like foreign influence, uh, the, the United States or, or EU countries, uh, you know, openly supporting the opposition, like the, just you know, generically the opposition. Are, are there indications of uh, of foreign support for these fascistic elements specifically? Well, I think that that's a murky territory because you know I wouldn't I wouldn't go so far as to say that uh, you know that they're financed and controlled directly. However, I think that they are enabled. These right wing elements; these are the same elements who mobilized uh, in two thousand four uh, with regard to the what's called the so called Orange Revolution, which brought uh, Yushchenko, former president of Ukraine, Yushchenko and uh, Timoshenko into power, and those right wing elements were mobilized for that purpose as well. So uh, you know we could see a distinct historical trend, and of course this is not limited to the Ukraine. If you look at the history of uh, the United States supporting fascist dictatorships in South America, in Central America, in Africa, and elsewhere, you can see that it is it is no stretch of the imagination to say that the United States makes common cause with ultra-nationalist and fascist forces for the purposes of geopolitical gain. This is, of course, the key. The Ukraine represents a, a geopolitical goal for the United States and the West more generally. They would like to make the Ukraine into a de facto NATO protectorate, a de facto NATO colony, a forward outpost of the NATO imperial power. And this is the key point of all of this, because the so-called uh, economic partnership agreement, which was proposed by the European Union and which is portrayed in the West as purely an economic agreement, it is no such thing. It is also a military agreement. It is, in effect, a backdoor way for NATO to get its tentacles into the Ukraine. Now, this, of course, we have the historical precedent of Georgia and, and naturally also of the Balkans. And so I think it's very uh, clear that Russia interprets this as a, as a very real threat, which I would argue it is. Now, uh, in the article, you, you make reference to, um, uh, to Hitler's brown shirts and Mussolini's black shirts, and uh, I, I'm just wondering if, um, given that historical precedent, where you see things headed if uh, the, uh, the, there isn't some sort of a check on the, uh, the, these, the, the, the current uh, fascist elements that seem to be uh, well, dominating. Well, I think that the growth of the, the growth 
growth of this kind of a fascistic ideology in, in places like Ukraine is inevitable. I think that a lot of it has to do with economic hardship. And this is true not just of Ukraine, but in much of Europe. You see the rise of parties like the Golden Dawn in Greece, uh, other parties throughout Europe who uh, espouse essentially a very similar neo-Nazi sort of an ideology. And this, is, this has a tremendous appeal, particularly in places that are devastated by economic hardship uh, within the European Union. So uh, what, what you see is not only is it a neo-Nazi ideology, it is very anti-EU. It is anti-Europe. It is anti-European Union. And so it has a tremendous sway with people in a place like Greece. In Ukraine, it's interesting that this, is, this formula seems to be inverted because it is Ukraine that doesn't yet realize what membership in the European Union would actually be. So for many of the protesters, whether they're of the ultra-nationalist variety or of the more liberal variety, they view the West and Europe as some kind of, uh, you know, uh, a better future for themselves. Of course, if they were to ask the people of Kosovo or Slovenia or Poland or the Baltic states, I think they might get a very different interpretation. But coming back to your question about uh, where the ultra-nationalist tendency is heading, it really depends on how things play out in Ukraine. What is Vladimir Putin and the Russian government going to do? You've seen that they've laid pretty low uh, with regard to these events uh, on the eve of the Sochi Olympics. But that is going to come and go in a, in a matter of days. And once that has passed, what countermeasures will Russia take with regard to the economic arrangements they have with Ukraine, with regard to the various other influences that they have in that country? Um, and furthermore, inside of that country, there has to be a force that recognizes the threat that fascism poses, not only in Ukraine, but elsewhere. And unless that is recognized all throughout Europe, and particularly in Ukraine, the immediate future is a very, very dangerous one, especially for those people who are members of ethnic and racial and religious minorities throughout Europe. Eric Draitzer, I'm afraid I have to leave it there, but I want to thank you very much for that very uh, thorough analysis of uh, the goings-on in the Ukraine uh, uprisings. Thanks. Thank, thank you very you much. Thank you very much for having me. Eric Draitzer is the founder of StopImperialism.org, an independent geopolitical analyst based in New York. He's also a frequent contributor to the Global Research News site. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. Uh, joining us now to provide a geopolitical and geostrategic context to the events overtaking the people of Ukraine, we're joined on the line by Rick Rosoff. Uh, Rick Rosoff, he runs the uh, Stop NATO website and listserv. So thank you very much for joining us, Rick Rosoff. It's always a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you for inviting me. Okay. Now, first of all, um, now we, we are talking uh, about events that go back... Uh, uh, well, what we're told essentially is that uh, the, the, the unrest was triggered by a decision by uh, President Yanukovych to, um, to ditch the uh, association uh, agreement with the European Union. That, that triggered a number of uh, protests and demonstrations. There was a particularly uh, a violent demonstration in, uh, on November 30th, uh, in which uh, police uh, had... Uh, 
used excessive force or reported of using excessive force and the, the images galvanized hundreds of thousands of people and demonstrations in Kiev. And so we're seeing since then this uh, period of people re reacting to, uh, uh, well, there was the, uh, first of all, the, uh, the, the ditching of the agreement and then the, uh, the crackdown. And then later on we saw the, uh, the government imposing restrictive anti-protest laws and reactions to that. And so I, um, I, I just wanted to have you maybe try to uh, examine those realities and put forward your own thoughts about uh, the extent to which that official story in, in terms of the way people are mobilizing, how uh, does that make sense or is there, is there anything that stands out to you about, you know, this reaction to government um, actions. I'm glad that you prefaced uh, your, your comments and you know uh, the lead into this entire discussion with such words as uh, geopolitical and geostrategic. I know oftentimes people kind of wince when they hear those words because they f they fear they're going to hear a an academic or quasi-academic treatise of some sort being read to them. But those are, are c uh, critical terms uh, al along with historical or, uh, you know, historico-political, uh, in that these are the spatial-temporal coordinates within which uh, any major political event, uh, you know, have to be situated, and when more so than in the 21st century, you know, the era of globalization of the World Wide Web and so forth, how can uh, anyone talk about uh, an event isolated from both uh, history and regional and ultimately world politics? You know, it's... Uh, it's uh, inane, really, to suggest that's the case. But that is exactly how uh, commercial media outlets uh, discuss such matters. They freeze frame, they isolate, they decontextualize, and then the discussion becomes, you know, what happened in this uh, given event in Kiev or in another, uh, Lviv or some other Ukrainian city on a given day. Not that that, uh, you know, the individual uh, events are not important, but they have to be uh, viewed within a... Um, a sensible and a uh, um, you know, reasonable uh, context. That's what I think has to be stated right right up front. So it, it would now, be erroneous to say that uh, this history started on November 21st. Precisely. That's uh, the best way I could think of putting it. And the uh, you know a prominent Russian parliamentarian, a member of the lower house of parliament, the State Duma, Alexei Pushkov. Uh, who's also the chairman of the International Relations Department in uh, the State Duma, ma you know, made mention a few weeks into the uprising. It's an uprising and not protest, and I'll defend that choice of words in a moment. Uh, stated in December that Russia, having defused plans by the United States, its NATO, and its Gulf Cooperation uh, Council allies to wage war against Syria late last summer, that the U.S. and its allies were seeking revenge by in the Ukraine. And I think that is, I mean, that's speculative, but I think that's, that rings very true. And it suggests that uh, the on the global geopolitical chessboard, uh, to employ the infamous illusion of Zbigniew Brzezinski, who more than anyone else alive today is perhaps responsible for what the world looks like uh, for the worse. Uh, that it, the world attention has indeed uh, changed its focus or shifted its focus from Syria to Ukraine. Uh, this was manifested. This was, um, you know, I think incontestably uh, demonstrated at the recently concluded Munich Security Conference, the 50th anniversary one in Bavaria, where there was a rather heated exchange uh, between uh, Western and, and Russian officials, particularly on the question of Ukraine. 
uh, Foreign Secretary of Russia, Sergei Lavrov, had some very strong statements, and he uh, basically indicted uh, the European Union for not criticizing the violent, um, uh, not only violent, but fascistic uh, manifestations amongst the alleged protesters, or, or real or alleged protesters in, in Kiev. Uh, but also, we noticed, of course, predictably, uh, major American officials like John Kerry and the infamous, infin- infinitely infamous uh, John McCain, uh, but also Catherine Ashton, the foreign affairs uh, you know, coordinator for the European Union, uh, NATO Secretary General Andrews Fogg Rasmussen and others weighing in and, uh, you know, as though they had the right to determine uh, the political and economic future of Ukraine. So what you're seeing is an east-west divide comparable to uh, perhaps a crisis during the Cold War. Um, uh, manifesting itself in Europe right now around Ukraine. So we have, again, a global context within which this has to be uh, situated. Now, we also have an historical one. And uh, the history goes back, essentially, to, of course, the breakup of the Soviet Union into its 15 uh, federal republics in 1991, very precipitately done, done without consultation for the most part with the respective citizenry, uh, in those 15 republics, and there are contested areas. I mean, there is an area called the Kerch Strait that separates the Sea of Azov from the Black Sea, uh, over which Ukraine and, and Russia have had some differences in the past. The current Yanukovych government has signed agreements, cooperative agreements with Russia, and that's one of many reasons why the West wants his government toppled, and that's what the West wants. Uh, the other is the fact that during his predecessor's regime, uh, that of Viktor Yushchenko, plans are made to uh, sabotage uh, the pumping of Russian oil and perhaps natural gas uh, into Europe through Ukraine through you know, a variety of different uh, methods, uh, including you know, ho- holding up the uh, transport of Russian uh, petrochemicals into Europe. And all these are you know, factor into the, the basic scenario that I've portrayed for you. But on the question of what happened on November 21st, it was... A rejection, a very tentative, I shouldn't even say rejection, a tentative postponement of plans to sign an association agreement with the European Union by the Yanukovych administration in Kiev. Mm-hmm. The, the, yeah, this was a uh, follow-up to, and this is where history plays, and it's very recent history. In 2008, uh, using uh, Sweden, a European Union, but not a NATO member, the, for all intents and purposes, a NATO member now, and Poland, one of the newer inductees both into NATO and the European Union, as frontmen, if you will, uh, the European Union pushed uh, a program, and is still pushing, called uh, Eastern Partnership which uh, targeted the six Soviet republics in Europe and the South Caucasus, uh, excluding Russia. So there are Ukraine, Belarus, Moldova, uh, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, to wean them away from the Commonwealth of Industrial States, which is the post-Soviet economic union, basically, to isolate Russia economically, just as it's isolated politically and military, militarily through NATO expansion, and the association agreement uh, that was presented to Ukraine was fully the equivalent of the NATO-Ukraine Commission that was set up the following year in 2009, immediately after the five-day war between Russia and Georgia and the Caucasus. Hmm. Could you, uh, you... You did mention Syria earlier, and there just seemed to be a, a switch of venues... Um, could, could you maybe explain a little bit more carefully that, that gain that, uh, on the part of the U.S. and, and its uh, NATO affiliates uh, of these two regions, what, uh, what, what would be gained 
as a result of a, a successful, uh, um, I don't know if you want to use the term coup or uh, overthrow or, or getting your influence uh, achieved, what, what would be gained by the U.S. NATO, what would be lost by Russia, and vice versa? Good question. And uh, the answer in, in general is quite a bit, and uh, I'll flesh out in a bit. You know, as a uh, coincidence, I suppose, would have it, I, I happen to be uh, reading the you know, voluminous uh, diary of a writer by uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, the, the prominent Russian novelist. And in 1876 and 77, when the uh, Russo-Turkish War was occurring, uh, he talked very much about geopolitics. I mean, it's amazing how much, you know, in the uh, 19th century, people were very astute about geopolitics. And again, as the, you know, I made the point earlier, uh, when it's all the more applicable, when it's all the more uh, unavoidable, you know, how we tend to miss it. Uh, and he was talking at that point, and, you know, from the point of view of Russian geostrategic interests, that um, Russia engaging in a military conflict with Turkey would want to seize control of Constantinople, Istanbul, and then open uh, Russian uh, naval presence to not only the Black Sea, uh, but ultimately to the Mediterranean Sea. This is, you know, how countries operate, you know, for better or worse in geopolitics. And what the uh, U.S. and its NATO and its Gulf Cooperation ally, and Israel for that matter, allies, you know, desired in Syria was, amongst other things, not only to eliminate a government that is one of only two currently in the uh, Arab world that does not have direct, actually the only one currently in the Arab world, that does not have direct bilateral military ties with the United States, and the only one, with the exception of its neighbor, uh, Lebanon, which will go the way of Syria, that does not have increasingly close uh, military cooperation with the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. That's every single member of the Arab League. Uh, you know, many of your listeners may have uh, seen in the New York Times two days ago where President uh, Abbas in Palestine talked about moving NATO troops into the West Bank to stay there indefinitely. This is something I had reported two years ago, uh, meaning that the, this would be the last marker on the board, more or less, amongst Arab ent political entities to fall under NATO sway. And, uh, you know, increasingly, by the way, we're seeing that in, uh, in Yemen and Somalia and so forth. So uh, what it means in Syria is consolidating U.S.-NATO control of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, up until recently, the only independent entities in the entire rim of the Mediterranean were the small island nation of Cyprus, which now has a change of government. And one of the first things that new government, the new government has announced it's, it's, is that it's going to join NATO's Partnership for Peace program. NATO has announced, as a matter of fact, the U.S. is now uh, planning to train thousands of Libyan military and, pers and uh, security personnel in Bulgaria uh, to create a NATO standard army for the uh, post-Gaddafi Libya after NATO waged a, a six-month war against the nation. And there's been open discussion by NATO and U.S. officials about bringing Libya into NATO's Mediterranean Dialogue Military Partnership Program. So what you really have now in, in the Mediterranean is you have uh, Lebanon, Syria being the only two countries that are not either members of NATO or members of NATO partnership programs. So that's one reason they wanted to eliminate the Assad government in Syria. The other, vis-a-vis -vis Russia, is the fact that Russia has its only, uh, you know, minor at that naval facility in the entire Mediterranean Sea in Syria. So with an overthrow of the uh, uh, Bashar al-Assad government in Syria, you would have the eviction of Russia from the Mediterranean Sea. The ships that uh, regularly dock in the Tartus uh, uh, naval facility in Syria are, from, for the most part, from the Russian Black Sea Fleet, which is based where? It's placed in, in Sevastopol, in the Crimea, and Ukraine. 
And each summer, the United States and its NATO allies conduct uh, uh, fairly large-scale military war, uh, war games, really, military exercises called Sea Breeze, uh, within a short distance from the Russian Black Sea Fleet. Now, a precondition for a nation uh, joining NATO is a full NATO member. And keep in mind, uh, the European Union is the bait, and NATO is the trap. But a precondition is that there be uh, no presence of foreign military personnel on the soil of an aspirant nation uh, to, uh, to uh, uh, attempting to join NATO. Now, by no military forces, what do we in fact mean is no non-U.S., non-NATO military forces. So that the Russian Black Sea would effectively have to be evicted as well from uh, the Crimea in order for Ukraine to be brought into NATO. This is where the connection exists. And what this means geopolitically is crippling Russia, making it an entirely a Pacific uh, power if the U.S., uh, in uh, conjunction with what the U.S. and NATO are doing in the Baltic Sea, basically driving Russia out of Europe out of the Mediterranean, and uh, at the same time, the U.S. is uh, engaging in its uh, you know, much-touted Asia-Pacific pivot to move yet military hardware into the east, you know, boxing off Russia and China, but in this case, boxing off Russia from both directions. This is geopolitics. Now, it, it, you make it sound as if there's just way too much at stake to, to trust the, both for the U.S. and for Russia to trust the people of Ukraine to make their own decisions. And, and I, it seems like we're seeing some manipulation on both sides. Uh, Russia offering uh, to, to, to purchase government bonds and uh, to, to, to cut the rate of the, the natural gas they were getting. Um, and, and as far as the U.S. Uh, side of the, the balance is concerned, um, there, there's some manipulation as well there that goes beyond... <clears throat> that goes beyond uh, cheerleading for the opposition, if uh, I'm not mistaken, correct? Yeah, your points are all well taken. And I mean, I'm not exonerating anyone from, you know, influencing, uh, you know, exerting national influence, including economic blackmail, if need be, uh, to contain a situation. But I think there's a world of difference between, um, you know, traditional geopolitics exercise vis-a-vis -a, -vis a smaller neighbor. Ukraine has maybe, 100, uh, maybe 50 million people, Russia 150, 160 million. Uh, let's uh, c come up with a hypothetical here. Let's suggest that through a series of um, U.S. non-governmental organizations and so forth, that the U.S. was able to overthrow illegally elected government in Mexico. And not the U.S., but rather Russia. And that, uh, you know, the, the wife of this uh, the installed uh, new head of state was a Russian who was uh, educated in Moscow and worked for the Kremlin for years. Because this is exactly what happened in Ukraine in 2004, 2005. With Victor Yushchenko and, and his wife Kathy Yushchenko, who's from Chicago here, by the way, born and raised in Chicago, uh, and member of the Reagan and George H. Uh, w. Bush administrations, incidentally, and um, you know Russia then was trying to overthrow yet another government in Mexico, and the U.S. stepped in and used economic leverage to try to prevent that. Would there be such a global outcry about U.S. interference in the internal uh, political affairs of Mexico? I, I hardly think so, but. Uh, you know, what do the Ukrainian people say? Say I think they're very confused, and I don't think they're particularly pleased by any of the key players. Let's be honest about that, right? That we saw it in the runoff elections, uh, the general in the runoff elections in the last two, is there is not a consensus candidate. You know, there are unfortunately regional 
they're even, to a degree, I don't mean to use the term pejoratively, but sectarian in terms of which form of Christianity is practiced in the West and the rest of the country, and, and historical divisions you know, within the country. And you're not going to have, I think, one political party dominating necessarily. But you, uh, the, most re- you know, the last uh, presidential election showed the U.S. favorite, Yushchenko, who got slightly over 5% of the vote. I repeat, slightly over 5% of the vote. But this is somebody who we were assured of uh, nine years ago was a savior of the Ukrainian people. He was popular. Um, you know, only the evil Russians were opposing him and so forth. And we saw what the Ukrainian people did. And their elections, by the way, are multi-party elections. They're not like the fraud we have down here where they, you know, $3 billion is spent on, uh, you know, a fixed, um, rigged two-party election. I mean, there are smaller parties in the um, in the Rada in the in the Ukrainian Parliament. You know, communists are in the uh, Ukrainian Parliament, incidentally. You know, socialists. Uh, you have nothing like that in the United States. How dare we? Uh, you know, criticize the Ukrainian uh, political model for being uh, constructive when uh, we're far worse. That I think has to be established. But yeah, you, you, I mean, you're correct. Ultimately, <laughs> the Ukrainian people have to decide. Uh, what, you know, and I would suggest, you know, uh, Russia is not suggesting they join any military bloc. I mean, there is a security bloc that grew out of the fragments of the Soviet Union. It's called the Collective Security Treaty Organization. And it's currently comprised of seven countries. Ukraine is not one of them. And I'd, I've never seen, you know, any um, suggestion even that Russia is trying to lure uh, Ukraine into that security bloc, which is not a military bloc. Necessary. I mean, it's strictly a military bloc. Whereas the U.S. is hell-bent on bringing Ukraine into NATO. That's incontestable. In the uh, 2008 NATO summit in Bucharest, Romania, NATO reasserted its commitment that both Ukraine and Georgia would join NATO as a full member at some point in the future once the preconditions were met. And as we just talked about, one of the key preconditions is there's uh, no uh, internal disputes within the country about territory, and Crimea could constitute that but more particularly that there are no foreign military forces stationed in the country. So, I mean, I can interpret that pretty easily. If you're a pro-Western political figure in Ukraine, you want to make points, then to get Ukraine into NATO, which is you know, the chief objective, uh, you have to evict the Russian Black Sea fleet from the Crimea. It's, uh, I, I've been reading uh, a lot of articles about some of the elements in the, uh, the street protests who uh, they, they've, Adopted this anti-Russian uh, and, and even uh, you know anti-Semitic uh, mentality. I mean, I don't wish. I'm not saying that this is necessarily symbolic or representative of all of the protesters, but there is that element in there. Uh, how, how significant is that uh, that, that sort of right-wing uh, anti-Semitic uh, xenophobic element to to the in, in terms of that wider. Uh, uh, movement of uh, uh, disruption. Uh, I can't remember quite the word you, you mentioned. Uh, not protest, but uh, it's an uprising. Uprising, yeah. I mean, this this is an attempted push. I mean, I, I will defend the use of that uh, German word most definitely. And you know, if I could, then you know, the, the segue from that. You know, what you're talking about? First of all, I don't know the actual constitution of, of the opposition in Kiev uh, in terms of those who come out on the street, uh, and I don't know of anyone who does. But I can say this, the fact that such types are not only tolerated, but appear to be the, uh, you know, um, uh, advance guard or shock troops, you know, of the protesters is, I think, something really worth uh, examining because that's serious business. And we are talking uh, about parties like the Svoboda, uh, Ukrainian word for freedom, a uh, party which up until recent years was using um, 
a variation of the Nazi swastika as his logo. And we're talking about uh, people like you allude to, you know, accusing uh, the government in Kiev of being uh, manipulated by Muscovite Jews. And, you know, this is the kind of talk you're hearing. And it's evocative, of course, of the um, you know, Stefan uh, Bandera types, Stefan Bandera types, and, uh, you know, during World War II, collaborated with the Nazis. Uh, so that element is there, just as the, uh, you know, fanatical, monstrous, you know, uh, internal organ-eating uh, fanatics are, are uh, an integral part of the so-called opposition in Syria. Now, I mean, I'm not trying to um, uh, diminish the importance of legitimate political dissension. Now, I hope it does exist in the Ukraine, as I hope it does exist in the Ukraine. I wish there was a lot more of it down here, I can tell you. Uh, but, and that innocent people may be swept up into plans that... Uh, the intent of which are, you know, far larger or more devious uh, than they're aware of. I'm not, you know, accusing everyone who's gone out the street of being dishonest. Uh, I don't imagine, you know, if I were a Ukrainian citizen, I personally would vote for Viktor Yanukovych. I mean, if anyone needs to hear that. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, there are certain uh, uh, questions of legitimacy. You know, one of the demands of the opposition, this is why you use the word push, is that, you know, once again, just as in 2004, if the election doesn't turn out the way you want it to, you accuse the government of rigging the election and you demand a, an extra-constitutional, uh, effectively, extraordinary uh, election. That's what happened this with the all, Orange Revolution. Yeah, that's exactly what the so-called Orange Revolution was. And its predecessors, right? The Rose Revolution in Georgia and the events in Yugoslavia in the autumn of 2000. So this is, uh, this kind of... Uh uh, manipulation that that's something that uh, the u.s noted it's, it's it's one of the tools in their arsenal uh, this sort of uh, manipulation of, of mass movements in order to secure certain political gains it has always been but it's been in the post-cold war period particularly uh let us say in, in you know the new millennium you know the new in the uh the 21st century uh, starting in yugoslavia and spreading not only to Georgia and Ukraine, but successfully in countries like Lebanon, Kyrgyzstan, Moldova, uh, and others where, um, you know, governments have effectively been overthrown. You know, federal elections have been negated, um, and uh, pro-U.S. Uh, uh, officials have been brought to power. So, you know, this is a, a massive, massive industry. You know, what uh, the Russians may call political technocracy or technology, but it's really an industry of hundreds, hundreds of, you know, alleged non-governmental organizations, um, you know, with uh, financial and information and other resources available to them, you know, ultimately resting on the model uh, created in uh, Serbia in the late 1990s by um, uh, Marovic and Popovich, Sergio Popovich and Ivan Marovic, of you know at that time was called Otpor, is now known by its cute English, I might add, uh, acronym Canvas, uh, which and you know, I'd invite people to go to YouTube, t type in those names and see what they say. They brag about bringing about regime change in countries around the world using as their textbook, uh, you know, Gene Sharp's book from Dictatorship to Democracy. You know, he of the Albert Einstein Institute and his colleague, retired Colonel Robert Helving, you know, who compares his methods to military ones because, in essence, they are. Rick Rosoff, um, let's, uh, if events keep unrolling as they seem to be, uh, could you give us some, what, what kind of an end game do you think we're looking at? Are we looking at uh, a, a destabilized Ukraine? Uh, they're going to make a case for some sort of a humanitarian intervention, or are we going to see uh, somehow a, a manipulated election that will result in a, another uh, Yanukovych-type uh, 
uh, government? What, what, what are what, what do you think is the game plan here? No, again, you frame the you know the question well uh, because those are two two or more distinct possibilities because it could be a combination of the two. Uh, I think one of the misconceptions, if I can be so bold as to suggest it is a misconception, is that oftentimes people feel, uh, you know, the U.S. has made a mistake. You know, they've intervened in Iraq or Afghanistan, and things didn't go according to plan, and it was a disastrous accident, and so forth. You know, I don't believe that. I believe oftentimes uh, the intent precisely is to destabilize the situation, uh, to create problems for, you know, neighboring countries, uh, to permit the you know, ongoing military presence in a, in a country that's still unstable. Um, but oftentimes it's uh, simply to keep their oar in, if you will. You know, it's simply to keep a hand uh, you know, in there, poker in the fire. And what that means oftentimes is the U.S. may not want a, you know, a complete uh, transformation, political transformation in Ukraine. It may simply want to uh, you know, perpetuate it as a bone of contention, an apple of discord. Uh, between uh, Russia and its neighbors and, and the rest of Europe, that would be sufficient. There may also be plans, uh, when you talk about military intervention, there are two possible scenarios. You know, one of them is things get so bad in the western part of the country that you know, the uh, parliament, the Rada, in uh, Crimea votes for, uh, you know, autonomy status. In which case, you know, the uh, pup, uh, U.S. puppet regime in uh, Kiev should have come into existence, would then threaten it, and then, uh, you know, invoke it's, uh, you know, right to defend itself and call in uh, Western troops or something, in which case you have trouble. Uh, a similar one is some of the more fascistic um, uh, elements in the West, especially around Lviv, uh, the real Banderaites in Ukraine, you know, may decide they, they're going to set up an autonomous region or succeed from Ukraine. I'm not suggesting this is a serious possibility, but it's a propaganda effort. It's something that may happen, in which case the government in Kiev has no choice but to intervene, perhaps militarily. And then, you know, that uh, brings about a, um, uh, an excuse for the U.S. to intervene militarily. Look, we've already seen the heavy-handed, uh, you know, pressure and rhetoric that's emanated from the West. You know, talk about sanctions against the, uh, there are actually members of the parliament, of the Verkhovna Rada have been uh, already sanctioned by the U.S., or I should say travel bans. And then the sanctions and other punitive efforts against Ukraine. So this is carrot and stick, right? The, the stick, supposedly, is an association agreement with the European Union that would relax tariffs and so forth. And I should add, I mean, I'm sure there are perfectly sincere people in the Ukraine who believe that in, uh, an association agreement with the European Union would demand a certain amount of transparency and government operation, which is probably appealing to a certain, uh, you know, a certain type of reformist in Ukraine, and not without reason. But uh, it's, uh, you don't, uh, you know, sell your, uh, your soul for a mess of pottage. You don't sell your nationality for uh, uh, better government at home, and, and your whole government may be run from the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. I think that's important to remember. Okay. Well, Rick Rosoff, uh, we've really appreciated this uh, analysis of uh, these uh, current and ongoing events in the Ukraine. I want to thank you very much for, for sharing those perspectives with us. And thank you again for allowing me such a, a wide-open forum. We've been speaking with Rick Rosoff, the owner and manager of the Stop NATO website and international mailing list. That concludes our broadcast for this week. 
On Friday, February 14th at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, the Global Research News Hour will air a special live broadcast of the Global Research News Hour featuring some popular former guests and information on how listeners can donate to CKUW, the radio station that hosts the program. To hear the show and pledge your financial support, please visit ckuw.ca slash listen or if you live in the Winnipeg area, tune in to 95.9 FM. I am series host Michael Welch. Join us again the week after next with another regular installment of the Global Research News Hour.